Hello? I'm alive, I swear. What do you have there? It's a book. And why No. It's a book. Okay, welcome to Book History Illuminated. I am still Leah, I am still your host, and I am still stoked to be here. Uh, I know it's been a long time since I posted episode one of the podcast, but my computer broke, and then I got lazy. Uh, so, yeah, uh, I'm here now, and that's what matters. As you can probably tell by reading the title of this podcast, today's episode is on Robert Darton's communication circuit. Now, I know all of the book historians out there probably just let out a collective groan. This is one of those topics that gets covered over and over again, and there's always a lecture called the communication circuit in any kind of book history program. But nobody can deny that it is a very important I guess you could call it a theory, it's more of like a, a structure, but it's an important thing to know about when you're in book history, uh, because it comes up again and again in every article, every book, probably because book history is so new, and this is one of the few structures we have that's discipline-specific, so it is, it is very useful. So this is why I'm covering it earlier in the podcast, so that we can get it covered and then move on to bigger and better things, but keep this structure in mind because this is going to come up again and again. So anyway, to make it a little bit better for those of you who are familiar with the communication circuit, though, I'm only going to spend a little bit of time going over the circuit itself. Don't worry if you've never heard of the circuit. I'm going to go through all of its parts, but the majority of this podcast is going to be considering why this circuit is useful to book history, and also why it might have its limitations. And I think looking at the circuit in this way will make for a more interesting podcast, but will also kind of expose listeners to the, I don't know, for lack of a better word, nuances of this, of this theory, this thing that is so important to this field. So the first thing to do is introduce Robert Darton. Robert Darton is actually a really big deal, not just in the book history community, but in the academic community in general. He was the director of Harvard University Library up until January 2016, and he spearheaded the Digital Public Library of America project. You can look at the, I don't know, the final product at dp.la. It is definitely, definitely worth checking out. Just make sure you have two or three hours to let yourself fall down that rabbit hole because it is immense. The Digital Public Library of America kind of brings together a bunch of collections from across America to present American and world history and heritage in an accessible way and in, you know, I don't know, an easy to use and fun way. I'm really excited about it. I remember when it first came out, I was not so thrilled and it's just, it's constantly improving. In 2012, I actually saw Darton speak at U of T about the DPLA and kind of the different things that go into creating such a thing. It was really interesting. Darton's a funny guy. I, I like him a lot. I feel like he's that kind of person that you want to have for tea at your house. Anyways, I think he'd be awesome. And it's cool because he doesn't seem to take himself too seriously. Like he clearly takes his work seriously, but doesn't take himself too seriously. This is a guy who wrote a book in 1984, kind of near the beginning of his career, called 
the Great Cat Massacre. And I am probably never going to read this book because I feel like reading it would make it lose a lot of its magic. But apparently it's really good. It's about printer's apprentices who killed cats en masse. Uh, and I think Darton suggests that that's an early form of workers' protests. But I don't know. Anyway, I guess that's all you really need to know about Darton. He's just a... He's a cool guy. Anyways, so with that, in 1982, this is pre-Cat Massacre, Darton publishes an article called What is the History of Books? And in this article he presents the communication circuit for the first time. Darton recognizes that a model can help us make sense of, you know, the mass amounts of information we're trying to sift through in such a new discipline. However, he also says, and this is a quote, models have a way of freezing human beings out of history. I think that's a really important thing to remember when you're considering his communication circuit because, and I'm going to go over kind of the parts of the communication circuit all of these parts are human roles. Um, they're not processes, they're the people involved. So let's just go over this really quickly before I, I expand on that idea. The first part of the communication circuit, or I guess I should say the part at the top of the, of the circle, because it's a circle, it goes around and around. The first thing you see at the very top is the author. And the author goes hand in hand with the publisher. Then the circle moves to printers, and the printers are influenced by the suppliers, the people who supply them with what they need to print. After the printers, the book goes to the shippers, people like agents, smugglers, whatever. Then after the shippers, to the booksellers, whoever is, you know, selling the book to whoever's going to read it. The next stage is the readers. Um, that could include book clubs, libraries, individuals, yada, yada, yada. And because we're talking about 18th century France here, although the circuit is applied to everything, um, Darton made it with the 18th century France in mind. The readers, kind of as a side note that say is, or says that readers go hand in hand with the binders because readers would get their books custom bound. And then there is a final linkage between the readers and the author. And that completes the cycle. So the order goes author and publisher, to the printers, to the shippers, to the booksellers, to the readers, and then back to the author. And I guess the most contentious part of this cycle is that final link between the readers and the authors, because Darton doesn't actually say explicitly how the readers connect back to the author. And why he's he's drawn this linkage everything else is with a solid line and darton's drawn this link with a dotted line instead of a solid one so i mean he's gone back to this article he's he's published a follow-up in 2007 and he kind of explains it more i guess but not really like it's not a satisfying answer but there are a lot of people who suggest things so i think i think the most common suggestion is that he's just talking about how reader feedback can maybe influence further like additions and also I guess sequels that kind of thing in today's world and it's also important to remember that the author writes for readers so reader expectations can maybe play quite a quite a significant role in the author's writing 
Anyway, I'm not going to go into further depth when it comes to that. The final part of the circuit though, so you have this big circle going around and around with all these people. And then on the inside of the circle, there are three notes. So they are the circumstantial things. So we have intellectual influences and publicity, economic and social conjuncture, conjuncture, and the political and legal sanctions of the day. So things like copyright. And these socio-political factors are in the middle and they influence every part of the cycle, every part of the circuit. Yeah, if you want to know more about each of these, especially the middle things, like those, that's where it gets kind of gray. There are tons of articles online that just go over what each of the parts are. I'm not going to do that here because it's boring and it's been done over and over again. And quite frankly, people who've done it before, I can't do it better than they can. So I'm not going to bother. Uh, but there's a really good article on this website called Function Follows Form, and form is spelled F-O-R-M-E. Uh, just Google Function Follows Form Communication Circuit. There's a really good article uh, about the communication circuit on there, and that guy knows what's up. He's great. So yeah, check it out there. Now, Darton's use of people for the little parts of the circuit has not gone uncontested. The most famous critique of Darton's communication circuit was by Adams and Barker, uh, Thomas Adams and Nicholas Barker, who in 1993 suggested a, another circuit and arguably a, a better one that doesn't use people but uses processes to go around and around. They write, and this is a quote, from the point of view of serving the history of the book, the weakness of Darton's scheme is that it deals with people rather than the book. It is concerned with the history of communication. The principal emphasis is placed on the people who participate in the process through which the book went in providing a means of communication. For those who are concerned with the total significance of books, especially the printed book, it has limitations. To begin with, it ignores the sheer randomness, the speculative uncertainty of the book trade. Especially in the early day of print, those who made or sold books had no precise idea what would sell where or how to reach that market. Books often took longer to sell and traveled far further than conventional lines of communication and trade would suggest. So what they're drawing attention to is the fact that nobody really knows who's doing what job. Everyone's doing kind of every job or there's so many blurred lines that you just, it doesn't make sense to use people because the structure's themselves aren't really in place. Like those roles that Darton mentions, the roles of printer, supplier, yada, 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 haven't always been as clear cut as they are today. So instead, Adams and Barker suggests that we use processes instead of roles. The circuit, therefore, starts with publication, then goes to manufacture, then to distribution, then to reception, and then to survival, and then back to publication. And this inclusion of survival is really, really important. And Darton actually recognizes in his revisitation of his What is the History of the Book article, he recognizes that survival is this really important thing that he just kind of forgot about. Um, or didn't forget about, but didn't really consider when he first made the circuit. And then while Darton's social circumstances are on the inside of the circuit, Adams and Barker place the whole socioeconomic conjuncture on the outside of the circuit. So it surrounds the circuit. And there are actually, instead of three social little bubbles, there are four. 
We have intellectual influences, political, legal, and religious influences, social behavior and taste, and commercial pressures. So yeah, that's it. Adams and Barker propose a more, I guess, inclusive diagram, uh, which I guess is why I like it more. Sorry, Darton. But yeah, I'm just gonna, just a quick note about the survival edition. It's important. I guess the best way to explain it is to use an example. I recently finished Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice for the first time. Took me long enough. When Pride and Prejudice was first published in 1813, readers probably consumed the text by reading printed codices. Or if they were lucky, they had somebody read the book to them. And of course, you can still buy hard copy versions of Pride and Prejudice. But nowadays, you can also get digital versions, audiobooks, which is how I consumed it. There are also theater productions, films, radio productions, all of which can present that same text in different ways. What matters is that the ways in which the text may be consumed have changed. And this is important because, according to some scholars like McLuhan, how one consumes a text is believed to influence how one perceives it. So even if the method of consumption does not influence how a reader perceives a text, the reader's familiarity with the setting of the text sure does. As Pride and Prejudice is set in the early 19th century, readers in 1813 would have related more with its setting than present-day readers might. This isn't to say that the modern reader can't appreciate the text. As you've no doubt noticed, there are far too many I Heart Mr. Darcy tote bags floating around, so people obviously still enjoy Austen's work and her characters, but they may enjoy it for different reasons than the 1813 audience did. To use Adams and Barker's term, the book has survived because readers continue to find meaning and relevance in it, even though social circumstances change. With all that said, Darton's a pretty good sport. Like I said before, he recognizes that survival was actually a really important thing that he failed to mention in his previous circuit. And he quote, and like, this is a quote from him. I did not do justice to phenomena such as preservation and evolution in the long-term history of books. So good on you, Darton. You know, he also, in his revisitation of his, like, initial article, he adds a lot of nuancey stuff about things like piracy, smuggling, that kind of thing. He's a pretty good sport. Yeah, he recognizes that the world has changed and that people are now using his model for every kind of book and not just 18th century France books. Oh, sorry. And when I say book, I mean to say printed book. I forgot to mention this at the beginning. This is printed books, not manuscript books that we're talking about. So with all that being said, I guess now is a good time to pull out a case study. The case study I've chosen to illustrate the limitations of Darton's model is that of Samistat in Soviet-dominated Poland. Nobody I know seems to know what Samistat is, and this is still new for me too, but I wrote a paper on this during my master's degree, and I, I don't know, I'm really, I'm really interested. Uh, I think it's just really, really cool. So Samistat translates to self-published in Russian. And I'm going to be talking about Samistat in Poland, um, and the Polish word that is often used is bibua, which means, I believe it means something like onion skin. And that's supposed to refer to like the thinness of the paper. Don't quote me on that. I do not speak Polish, but I think that's what it was. And basically what Samistat is, I'm just going to pull a definition out. Uh, this is by some guy named Gordon Johnston, who wrote an article that's actually really good called What is the History of Samistat? And he defines Samistat as, quote, 
the unofficial production and distribution of text-based material in typed, mimeographed, xeroxed, or printed form, specifically in Soviet states he's referring to as well. Um, the term samizdat has been used for kind of, I guess, like underground zine culture, but I I wouldn't liken the two. They're, it doesn't really work. So for the sake of this argument, I'm just going to talk about samizdat in Soviet states. There is hardly any scholarship on Samistat. There are a couple scholars out there who've started looking into it, but for now, we're still depending on materials popping up. Because this is still so new, like, I know in Hungary, the last Soviet soldier left in 1991, and I think it was really similar in Poland. So it's like only the early 90s that this is all kind of coming to a close. So all these materials, all these hidden materials, these underground publications are still just popping up now. There are a number of archives that house them. Some include the Samistat Archive Association in Munich, the Open Society Archives uh, Radio Liberty, the Archive Samizdata in Budapest, the International Samizdat Research Association, and all of these things, all these organizations aim to identify and catalog Samizdat materials as they pop up. There are still not a lot of Samizdat materials out there. They're probably in like your grandparents' attics, and more and more will pop up as people die, probably. But interestingly, when I was writing my paper for my master's thing, I was at the British Library, and I was looking at the Samistat collections that they have there. And in particular, I was looking at a Kurt Vonnegut book published by Poland's first underground publishing house and their biggest publishing house called Nova. Nova was founded in 1977, and it stands for, I'm going to butcher this, but I'm going to try it anyway, Nisaleshna Oficina Vedevnicza, which translates to independent publishing house. Very creative. But Nova ended up being the largest Polish Samistat publisher. Um, they published nonfiction, fiction, Polish works, international works. So um, like I said before, Kurt Vonnegut. And Nova is actually still around. In 1993, they turned into a private business model and called themselves Supernova. Looking at their website, it's in Polish. It seems like they're kind of tending towards Polish sci-fi fantasy. So good for them. In 1984, Nova published an edition of Mother Night in Polish. That's Matkanak. Sorry if I don't pronounce that correctly. So Mother Night by Kurt Vonnegut. On the first page of this edition, the producers actually note, and this is a quote, this translation is published without the knowledge and consent of the interpreter. So there's this blatant copyright infringement, but Kurt Vonnegut himself was definitely aware of the edition before it was published. And he was quoted as saying, quote, I learned about it when I was asked to write an introduction to that edition. I'm very flattered that someone was prepared to take risks in order to publish what I wrote. And you're probably thinking, if you haven't read Mother Night, what risks? Mother Night tells the story of an American playwright and Nazi propagandist following the Second World War. The Nation contributing writer William William describes the book as a novel of disguise and betrayal. Mother Night is full of people who believe they're really someone else, and its moral, Vonnegut would later write, is this. We are what we pretend to be, so we must be careful about what we pretend to be. 
you can probably imagine that such a story and like such a moral probably wouldn't have been liked very much by the Soviet powers. Vonnegut's novel plays on themes that seem to be pretty applicable to the Polish circumstance, even even though it's about Nazi stuff. Russian communism in particular is implicitly criticized throughout the entire book. There's actually a line in the book where Vonnegut writes, so he's talking about a novel that the protagonist of his book had written, and Vonnegut writes, quote, It could hardly be published with official approval in Russia. And yet, it was. So ideal for a nation suffering from shortages of everything but men and women. So, the government, the Soviet government, clearly disapproved of this book. It was not permitted to be published above ground. So Nova takes it below ground, making it available through underground means of production and distribution. And this is where the British Library comes in. I examined this edition of this or this book. I spent hours just pouring over it because it's just so strange. It's this bundle of pages that have been stapled together. It's been typewritten and I'm pretty sure it has actually been not scanned, but it looks like this was actually put through a typewriter one book at a time, kind of done that way. And there's this crazy cover that has this stamp that I, I spent a lot of my paper talking about how this stamp kind of was symbolic of a lot of things. I'm not going to go into that here, but yeah, it's at the British Library. Actually, if you want to go see this book, you can. You don't need any kind of special permission. Interestingly, though, when I asked the British Library how they had stumbled across this, like how had it come into their collection, because I thought that would make an interesting addition to my paper, you know, trying to I was basically I was trying to trace the provenance of this of this copy of this book and I got a response from their curator of I believe it was like Eastern European collections or something I don't know I got a response from her basically saying that they don't know how it came about like how they got it what happened with a lot of these psalmist out works is that people from the Soviet states would just come to the British Museum, because the British Library was at the British Museum um, at that point, they would just come to the British Museum's desk, drop them off without giving them any information, and walk away. I don't, I mean, I, I get why someone would do this, but I don't, I guess I don't really get it, but I thought that was really interesting. I thought that, that like, they, there's still this fear, you know, that you know that you shouldn't have these works, so you can't attach your name to it. That's really interesting to me. I don't know. Just it really highlights the importance of anonymity when it comes to these particular underground works. But very interestingly, there is indication that this edition of Makanak was part of a larger Samistat market and wasn't just passed from hand to hand privately. The book's back cover has a price on it 260 zloty, which is, you know, a pretty. I, from the, the looks of it, that seems to be a pretty cheap book during that time. I tried to look into price comparisons to see like what 260 gelati would be in relation to, you know, a bag of milk or I don't know, but I couldn't find anything. Probably because I was looking at bagged milk. Huh. Oh, there you go. Anyway, but Nova seems to have been financing itself through a sales model. Yeah, these books are produced for altruistic reasons, but there is still a business at the back end of things. 
where readers purchase these materials is still very unclear, but a book's price necessitates a bookseller, whose whereabouts must presumably be known by readers in order to conduct the sale. So even if the seller is not personally known, so for example, if money and material are exchanged without face-to-face interaction, there is nevertheless an established system of bookselling. So there is therefore evidence that distribution didn't simply just mean passing texts along. Nova's Samistat distribution included a commercial aspect in order to sustain the publishing house. And readers were clearly aware of the procedures necessary for purchasing material. And here, yeah, Darton's model seems to fit. But then... By 1989, a copy of Nova's 1984 edition had somehow made its way to, um, I'm going to butcher this name, I'm so sorry, Gdynia, which is about a four-hour drive, according to Google Maps, from Warsaw, where the 1984 edition was published. And there's another edition, sorry, so this this Petit Press publishes another edition in 1989, and it clearly uses the 1984 edition as a copy text. And there's, this is me making this assumption, this is not anyone else, so I could be wrong, but there are so many indications that this 1984 edition served as a copy text for 1989 edition. And I talk a lot about this in this paper, in like this paper I've written, but I'm not going to go over it. Um, Let's just assume that I'm right. I'm usually right. That's such a lie. I'm sorry. But it was used as a copy text. The Petit Press edition, though, is of significantly lower quality than the 1984 Nova edition. There are a lot of typos. The paper's not that good quality. There are random singletons that have been kind of pasted into the book, like singletons being like one leaf of paper. There's just like one leaf pasted in in the middle of the book where I'm pretty sure the typist made significant errors. The typist sometimes just types off the page. It's not really as pretty. There's just, you hold it and you're like, oh, like compared to the 1984 edition, you're like, I'm okay, I'll take the other one, thanks. This 1989 edition appears to be the product of an amateur publisher who just wanted to produce each copy, kind of individually, just wants to make this for altruistic reasons, I guess. It may not have been intended to be sold and instead like passed hand to hand. I, I don't. I don't know. This one seemed like my analysis of this particular edition kind of showed that Darton's model doesn't seem to be perfect for this or this edition, especially just because Samistat production and distribution didn't necessarily always meet the standards of production that could justify a profit motive. And this 1989 edition, I mean, if you want to pay for content, I guess you'd buy it. But like, even then, like the typist types off the page, you're not going to get the full content. I don't know, it just, it doesn't really, Darton's model just doesn't seem to fit in contexts that aren't profit-driven. And for me, looking at the 1989 edition, 1984 is clearly produced for, yeah, altruistic reasons, but there is kind of a, a profit motive, even if that profit is only just put towards making more books. But the 1989 edition just seems to be some person who has called themselves Petit Press, um, making books for the sake of making books, and not necessarily for coming out with a profit. Yeah, I don't know. This is where Adams and Barker's model seems to be more, more applicable. Darton's model is business-based, identifying the participants in a typical business cycle of production. 
And as a business cycle, one can assume a fundamental pursuit of profit by each of the individual participants. Adams and Barker's model, on the other hand, is process-based, reflecting the stages of production regardless of the participants and their objectives. And in a production system that is not necessarily profit-motivated, Adams and Barker's emphasis on processes over participants may be more relevant. Yeah, you could make even a new model to represent Samistat. I don't know if that would help. Uh, and there have been people, I think Gordon Johnston actually, there's a whole paper where he tries to apply Darton's model and then ultimately just says, you know what, it doesn't work. He spends the entire article going over why Darton's model works except for this, 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 and this. And he's listed on off so many exceptions by the end that it just doesn't apply anymore. And that's because Darton's model supports a business-like interpretation of overt publication cycles, even if he is talking about 18th century, I guess, censorship and that kind of thing. Darton's model best represents, or seems to best represent, mainstream status quos of mass publication. Samistat, though, was less based on profit and more on covert altruism. As such, its dissemination necessarily followed a more secretive and less direct path that circumvented censorship constraints. Samistat creators had to adopt non-standard ways of disseminating their material, and some aspects of the 1984 edition of Mott Canock do appear to align to Darton's model. I don't want to deny that. The clearly organized production structure, which contributes to the good quality of the text and the established distribution system, all kind of, they're in line with Darton's model. However, Samistat's indistinct roles its secretive dissemination arrangements, and its unknown readership suggests that Darton's model isn't an entirely appropriate frame of reference for Samizdat circumstances, at least at this time. Through recognition of the limitations of such models, we can better come to understand the dissemination of underground publications such as Samizdat that don't necessarily adhere to contemporary notions of print culture. However, we always have to be careful when we're using models. No matter how much I love Darton, his model is not the be-all, end-all. It is just one way of looking at things. It's one model you can use to help organize your thoughts. But like any model, we all have to be cautious that we don't try to find information that fits the model and disregard other information that may contradict it or may fall outside that kind of model. I think that's like a problem that I have with book history is that we have this model and it's great and it works for a lot of things. But I think a lot of book historians, maybe this is because the field is so new, I think a lot of the a lot of book historians try really hard to make things work with the model. I don't know if it's because they want to legitimize themselves and feel like this is a way to do that. That maybe isn't the best way of wording that, but I don't know. I it, it kind of annoys me. So now when people say, oh, according to Darton's model, I get kind of like, oh, really? And yeah, it's so important. And like, it's such a good model, but it just doesn't work for everything. And I think that, I think it was Gordon Johnston who wrote that article where he just tried to apply Darton's model and just listed so many exceptions by the end of it that it didn't apply. That is like the embodiment of that. And just, it's so frustrating. So anyway, yeah, that was our case study. Samistat. There is so much to learn about Samistat. I really, I really hope that I get a chance to look at those materials more and write more papers about it because I just wrote this master's paper. Like I didn't, it's not published or anything. Um, if anyone wants to read it though, I'm happy to send it your way. Just didn't want to 
read word for word in this podcast. Although I definitely read paragraphs, so you can tell where I'm reading and when I'm improvising, clearly. But yeah, so I think in summary, that was Darton's communication circuit. And that was Adams and Barker's response to Darton's communication circuit. And then I talked to you about Pride and Prejudice. And then I moved on to Samistat, which has nothing to do with Pride and Prejudice. And yeah, I mean, I, th- I think that's all. So I guess we wrap it up here. Thank you for listening. I hope you learned something new. Um, If you have any comments, questions, just want to say hi, you can email me at bhilluminated at gmail.com or tweet me at bhilluminated. You should also volunteer to be on this podcast to make it less awkward. Right now, it's just me stumbling over my words, and it would be great to have somebody else to stumble over words with, too. So, yeah, Um, I guess that's all. I will see you when I see you. Not see you, but until next.